Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with industry experts and professionals on marketing, media, and advertising. And today I am at the 1880 Club in Singapore, where I'm going to be talking with Neil Moore, content strategy and storytelling consultant at Moore's Law Media. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me, Darren. Much appreciated. Well, you're actually having me to your club. I'm just a visitor. <laughs> that makes me sound so elitist right off the bat. It's basically a fancy co-working space, right? Yeah, okay. But uh, I like what you've done with the name. I, I, I like what you've done there, Moore's Law. I can't believe the URL is free. <laughs> no one had taken it already. And, and that's uh, law not as L-A-W, but L-O-R-E. Grand tradition of storytelling through generations, yes. So you ha- actually have a long history of storytelling. And I'm not talking about the lies you used to tell to get out of s- trouble at school. But Well, that's where that's formative, right? That's where you learn your craft. So <laughs> I'm not discounting that by any means. No, no. But where does it, does it start for you? The idea of storytelling could actually be a career. Well, encapsulating it as storytelling, I think, is a, you know, that, that wasn't a word that was in popular usage until quite recently, but it, I, I'm glad it is. It does encapsulate kind of the, I've had a career that sort of skidded across different um, divides, television and, and advertising and film and digital and all, and all sorts. But I was, um, the thing that got me when I was 11, I uh, I got massively into drama and joined the local drama society and, you know, was the lead in the school play. And I ended up doing a GCSE and A-level and I went and studied acting at university. And there it was, it was storytelling of all sorts, be it, yes, playing parts, but also um, I did voice training and public speaking training and things like that, where it's all about how to engage an audience as yourself, not just as a performer. So little did I know at the time how much that would inform and influence the job I do now, um, because I thought I was training to be an actor. But um, but it did, it absolutely did, and it underpins everything, I guess. It's interesting that uh, you, know, you talk about this, the entertaining, theatrical part of storytelling. A friend of mine, Sean Callahan, who has a company called Anecdote, which is storytelling for business. Perfect. He actually talks about small S stories and big S, as in capital S stories. And he says storytelling in the sort of Hollywood tradition or the, the literary, literary tradition is big S stories because mm. we largely talk about them as being works of fiction designed to entertain, inform, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he also thinks there's a role for small S stories, which is the way that traditionally human beings have passed on experiences from one person to the next. And we tell stories in a way every day when we just recount things that have happened to us. They're not necessarily stories in the three-act play, but nevertheless, yeah. they're still stories. Yeah, one of the things that, that happens um, in marketing and other industries, I'm sure, is that we we try and codify and um, and, and commoditize everything. And so now storytelling is a thing, and that's great. That's why I've got a job and a, and a business, and that's wonderful. But now you've got people going out there and they're, they're you know, preaching the three-act structure or the 12-part hero's journey mm. as though it's this brand new discovery, not this ancient Greek thing that we've known for 2,000 years. And they're touting that as this is the way you tell a story. But of course, if you try and do a full three acts or a 12-part hero's journey or, or whatever in a, a you know, six-second Vine clip or a two-minute YouTube video, it's it doesn't always work that way. And different mediums have different modes of storytelling. Mm. Um, one of the things um, that a lot of brands struggle with when they're trying to work out how to do 
YouTube videos for, for argument's sake. And we can argue as to whether or not there's even such a thing as a YouTube video as a, as a medium in and of itself. But a lot of uh, Instagram stories and YouTube and things like that, they're, they're personality driven. They're not really stories. It's the people. Now, those people are storytellers, but they're not crafting perfect beginning, middle, end narratives no. for every video. It's personality driven. So there are different types of storytelling. And one of the things that I learned, um, one of the best experiences I ever had was about five years ago. Uh, maybe longer now, me and my former business partner, Simon Carney, who you you know well and, and is still a great friend of mine, we treated ourselves, after five years of running our business, we treated ourselves to a trip to the Producers Guild Conference in LA. Right. And the keynote speakers were David Fincher, Francis Ford Coppola, Seth Rogen. I mean, it was amazing, right? Because I had this revelation, which is, why the hell am I learning storytelling from marketing people? when all they're trying to do is create things that people love as much as what Hollywood people do. So I should just skip and just go and learn from the Hollywood people. And we went there. And to a, a man and a woman there, every producer, director, screenwriter agreed, story is secondary to character. Yeah. They say that, you know, you will follow a compelling character. It doesn't have to be a nice character. Tony Soprano is not a nice character, but he's a compelling character. You'll follow a compelling character on any journey. But if the character doesn't anchor it, if you're not compelled by them, you won't go anywhere with them. Because when you start watching something, you don't know the story. I like that term uh, compelling, mm. right? Because it doesn't ask you to make any moral judgment about the character. You know, no. That it, they don't have to be likable. They no. don't have to be desirable. They don't have to be anything. But that the the person that they are has something about them that you just want to know more. Now, whether that is in in the classic uh, fictional sense, whether it's a fatal flaw um, or something like that, but it, but isn't that what makes those characters re feel real? That makes yeah. them relatable. You but know? yeah, but it also gives them a hook, so you can apply it outside of fiction. So you know, before he became a big Hollywood writer, Charlie Brooker was a columnist for you know for the Guardian in the UK, and he wrote these fabulously acerbic, you know, really grim, cynical, nasty columns <laughs> that were absolutely brilliant and collected into books, much like your book, um, of which I've got. And he, uh, one of them is entitled "I Can Make You Hate," which I think is brilliant. Now, if you were sitting down trying to work out what's what's the perfect crafted personality that's going to make people want to listen and pay attention you wouldn't think of charlie brooker's you know foul mouthed acerbic rants but he had character he was compelling he had a fatal flaw he had that hook that meant he was readable um same goes with in our sector someone perhaps like bob hoffman who mm. delights in winding people up pissing people off and and um and taking apart the industry and he's got that that mix of wit and humor and um, an experience that he can put it together in a way that's compelling without being likable. That's right. It's a compelling reason to, yeah, to give you time. Because I think that's one of the things that a lot of uh, people in advertising have forgotten, that there is a quid pro quo here in that if you are creating a piece of content, you're giving it to people in return for their attention. Mm -hmm. Right, and we live in a economy where attention is becoming more and more valuable, because there are so many things competing for people's attention. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that's what is often overlooked: that the advertising world, where you would load up content into a environment and just blast it out, right? Well, but no this is what's happening with automation. This is what people are doing. People are instead of crafting really great content. Uh, this is 
very broad brush. Some yeah. people are. Um, what's happening is people are crafting a hundred pieces of fairly average, if not generally crap content, chucking it out through some sort of engine, finding the one that's got a one or 2% uplift over everyone else, because I don't know, it was a different shade of green. And then saying, that's the one, let's throw the rest of the money behind it. And they take that as a win. And it's not a win. It's, it's the least bad of all the crap that you put out. Um, and that is, that worries me. <laughs> Well, it does when people are putting measures on things that are actually not looking at the amount they're rejected. And what I mean by that is I, uh, it would be almost 15 years ago, that's dating me, <laughs> that I had a guy phone up and he said, we do a lot of direct mail, you know, posting stuff yep. to, our, to our customers. And I go, okay. And he goes, well, what's the benchmark for response rates? And I said, well, there's not a benchmark. If they're your customers, you would hope they're all responding because they're your customers. You have a relationship. You would hope. You would and he goes, oh, don't be ridiculous. Um, we used to get 1%, but it's dropped down to 0.9, and we're concerned about it. And I go, you should be. I'd be concerned too. <laughs> and he said, well, that's why I'm calling you. And I go, no, no, I'd be concerned that if I was talking to my customers and 99.1% of them were actively rejecting my initiation mm. of a conversation, isn't that insulting to me? Am I not basically being told by my own customers to bugger off? Well, and certainly he goes, bugger off in I've that never medium. thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> bugger off in that medium. You know, perhaps find me a different way or in a different way. But but this is this brings me to a real paradox about advertising at the moment, which is where what we're hearing is that everybody's trying to get insights and understand the customer better and whether it's through stats or data or analytics or first party research or whatever, all I keep hearing about is insights. We want to understand exactly what the customer wants and then they go and use that to make advertising, which the customer has very clearly, you know, 650 million people have deployed ad blockers around the world. People TiVo shows, they subscribe to Netflix to avoid advertising. You know, uh, the, the, there is a message that's being shouted loud and clear to you there. And what you're trying to do is find more ways or, or a better way of giving them something they've already said they don't want. Mm. And I find that very, very odd. It seems to go against the grain of everything else that they're trying to do, which is to listen to the customer and give them what they want. Mm. Well, it's interesting because what they're actually rejecting there is the concept of the advert. Mm. They're you're, not you're actually rejecting. Right. They're not rejecting content. No, and they're not rejecting the brand. Yeah, it's it's the meat. It's the package. So that guy was sending out direct mail. Maybe that was the problem at that point. He, you know, that they no longer wanted to receive that medium, or it went out of fashion, or whatever. But the sorry, the, and and I always know if I have to explain the story, I've told it badly. Oh, I'm sorry. It was more no. <laughs> But, Neil, it was more the fact that he was trying to optimise such a small response rate. Oh, like, I see what you're saying. Yeah, right, right, right. It's trying 1%. to get that tiny and I'm trying to, uplift. And it's dropped to point zero point nine, and I want to optimise that back. I'm going, he'd completely lost sight that there was a 99. So you it, know why I didn't I, get that story? Because I came to the advertising industry at digital Right. I okay. wasn't involved before then. Okay. That that sounds like a, a pretty good response rate. <laughs> okay. So so th this is how I actually got to him. I said, and I'll make it digital for you, okay? Mm. You send out an email to 100 of your friends inviting them to your birthday party and 99 of them don't not RSV, uh, don't say they can't make it. They just don't bother just responding at all. They ghost right? me. So how would you feel? And he goes, oh, that would be terrible. And I go... 
You've just told me that's what you're doing to your own customers or your customers are doing to you. Yeah, but I think that's and, what's happening it, with a lot of stuff yeah. and people are trying to get those tiny incremental gains. And I just think, is that what innovation is all base. about? Is that what innovation is really for? I thought it was about making big leaps and doing, you know, big brave things. But have we actually lost sight of the fact that there's human beings on the other end? Because isn't one of the great things about storytelling is that you talk to the person's truth, you know, the things that they uh, engage with, that they care about. Well, this is this is a, one of my sort of pet peeves at the moment, which is that, um, again, in this search for insights and, and it's everybody thinks that the consumer is hiding something from them and there's an insight to be uncovered and dug out because they're hiding. And and But the problem is, is in many of the marketers I speak to, their insights come purely from behind a screen. It's, it's just more dashboards, more analytics. And they can't remember, in some cases, the last time they spoke to a customer. And I often refer to um, a lady called Jin Zwicky who worked for OCBC Bank, who was uh, one of the best speakers I've ever seen at an event. And uh, she went in there as, a, as a, an experienced design person or something. And she was offered a lovely corner office in the Julia Street branch, you know, high up on one of the top floors. And she rejected it. She sat on the main floor mm. and she went to Ikea and just filled it with a TV, a unit, coffee table, sofa, blah, blah, blah. And every single day she would go downstairs to the Julia Street branch grab someone, bring them upstairs for a coffee, and she would make them read a web page, watch a video, an advert, read a pamphlet, whatever, and gather first party anecdotal feedback. And she combined it all and used it to take on the lawyers at OCBC who were insisting they use language that is not necessary to be used. Mm. And her results were extraordinary. You can, you can look them up from OCBC. Um, but I just, the fact that it was a revelation to me that this woman had decided to use her office to talk to people was like, Oh man, I've been looking at this all. Well, we got to get back to the talking to customers. Mm. You know, they're they're more than just data points on a screen. Okay, so going back to your story about going to Hollywood to see the uh, the producers mm. of great content, mm. did they give any insights on how they land on a story? The Is it random? I mean, <laughs> you've just said marketers do all this research looking yeah. for insights, but does Hollywood actually? do research or do they look for insights or do they just randomly come up with ideas? Does an influencer with 5 million followers? No. The answer is no, they don't. Now, the studios, before they back uh, a project to the tune of 20 or 30 or $40 million, they, of course, do their due diligence. Mm. Uh, and they go, well, is there a market for this? And, and uh, can we reach them? And are we going to get good distribution and whatever? Um, but when the idea comes to someone, there's a multitude of factors. So one is, you know, we do forget in this age where supposedly, and I'm, I'm doing quotey fingers here, yeah. anyone with an iPhone can make a movie, you're crediting the tool a lot more than you're crediting the person holding the tool. All of these people have immense talent. They've built reputations. That basically means that they can get in the room and, and pitch an idea pretty strongly. Before it's backed, obviously the studios look at they do their due diligence, but the person's reputation is a large reason why people turn out at the cinemas. Yeah. But here's the thing. The best story I heard at the event was from Seth Rogen. And he said, you know, I'm here to, supposedly to tell you how to produce a movie. That's not what I'm going to do. He said, put your hands up if you saw the green, was it Green Lantern or Green Hornet? Yeah. Green Hall. Oh. He was, was, he was one of them. them. One of them was a huge failure. Green he Lantern. Because right. the Hornet was the one with the Canadian guy. I'll take your word for it. I'm not a comic book guy, but I'll take your word for it. So he says, who saw it? And a load of people raised their hands. He said, keep your hand up if you thought it was shit. 
And most people left their hands up. And he said, right, I'm going to talk to you about how not to make a movie. And the interesting thing was, is that is the only movie he's made um, for the hundreds of millions of dollars as opposed to the tens of millions of dollars. And he said, the problem is you get to a point where it's, it's costing so much money that the people funding it um, are Wall Street bankers who take a private jet to the set for a weekend and demand that their girlfriend gets a walk-on part or boyfriend gets a walk-on part female investors as well. The point is, is it, it, you know, it's not a money issue. It's not, that's not the thing that makes or breaks. It's, it's talent, reputation, instinct, coupled with, there's a lot of projects these guys get turned down. You know, mm. Martin Scorsese doesn't get everything he wants made. Yeah. Um, they do get turned down by the due diligence. it can 10 years for them to get a project through. Oh, through it, um, Terrence Malick's last one took 18 years. Yeah. You know. Um, so, so they don't get everything they want, but I think, you know, there are talented individuals with that gut um, that, that, that implicitly understand a story. Mm. Now, you can enhance your awareness and ability to identify good stories, um, but how you tell them is the other part of it. And, and the way I illustrate that is I say, if the story alone was enough, Pirates of the Caribbean wouldn't cost $200 million. You could just have Johnny Depp read it to you. <laughs> you know, you, it's yeah. the how you tell it, you know, and, and the how you tell it, Mind you, Steve, on that you basis, want. Stephen Fry's made a very good career reading, uh, uh, narrating books, hasn't he? <laughs> He's, he has indeed. And, and, and as someone who, a bit quick plug now, I still and have been a voiceover artist for 15 years. Um, I wouldn't mind that gig myself. Exactly. Um, but they... Uh, I get the point, though. That, you know, you, you've got to tell it the right way. Needs to be told. So, so, so let, let, me, let me bring that into the corporate marketing sphere, right? So I was at a, a networking event at uh, BQ Bar on, on Boat Key in Singapore, and I met the CTO of a now-defunct uh, large tech company. And he came up to me and he said, you, you, do, you do stories and stuff. Tell me if this is any good. He said, when the Fukushima disaster happened, he said... The internet cables that come up on the beach were quite literally torn in two. And, and so we couldn't get any you know, coverage in the area, which made the rescue uh, mission very, very difficult and, and yada, yada. He said, so do you know what we did? And I said, no, I have no idea what you would do. And he said, well, we literally sent frogmen up there. They dived under the water and they basically gaffer it to just get some kind of signal through so that we can see those phones flashing and we can find people under the rubble. Right. And I was like... That's Amazing. that's an incredible story. I mean, my God, that's for a tech company. That's an astonishing story. He said, "How would you tell it?" And I said, "Well, I mean, on the spot, you, we'd get some archive footage from CNN. We'd go and speak to the frogman. We'd go and find the survivors. We'd go up there. We'd do a before and after. I mean, Mike, it would be amazing." And he turned around and went, "Yeah." Or what I thought was, you could interview our CEO about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I got people no. who, who don't have stories. You're sitting on an absolutely gold one, but you want to kill it in the telling <laughs> because you want your CEO to sit there and go, you know, as, a, le as a leading tech provider, we're delighted to, you know, go above and beyond yeah. to provide service for, oh, for goodness sake, give it a rest, you know. So how and, you tell it's important as well. And that's a really important thing because in a world where, especially in marketing and advertising, there's this constant downward pressure mm. on budgets mm. that people are cutting corners. But then there's a saying in advertising that if it's a great idea, then all extra production will do is polish it. It won't actually make it better. But a great idea is not just the core. The great idea might also be the idea to shoot it in a particular way. So you, or I'm talking about video here, but to write it in a particular way or to get a particular person to write it. Mm. You know, a, a, a film is a good example because it a film is not one idea. It's 
literally hundreds of people with lots of ideas that, that clumped together to make this film. The costume designer has amazing ideas. The script writer has amazing ideas. The lighting guy has amazing ideas. And they put them all together and that's how you get this incredible outcome. And the same thing happens in a, in a band. You've got the great idea for a song. If you've ever listened to the Beatles anthology, mm. you know, these songs didn't pop out of their heads fully formed. They spent hours and hours honing them and brought in external musicians and George Martin and Billy Preston. And it took a lot of ideas and a lot of honing to get it right. And I think we sometimes kid ourselves by sort of this narrative that permeates our industry that anyone with an iPhone can make a movie or anyone with a pen can write a novel or whatever. Actually, no, there's some really talented people out there um, that if you bring them in will add huge value to your project, whatever it is, and bring unique insight. But no, it's not a data point on Google. I mean, you can look at their reputation, you can look at maybe their own reach or their awards or whatever data points you need to do to justify it. But like you said, I, good ideas start in the gut and then you add the due diligence. And so to go back to the Hollywood thing, you know, these Hollywood people with a good reputation have an idea. They take it to the execs, like we all take to our client, and then the exec has to apply some due diligence to it. And it's that marriage of the two things. But you can't have one without the other. And, and unfortunately, instincts, that messy thing that sits in your belly is important. So how can we translate that insight, that approach from a place like Hollywood mm. to Madison Avenue or wherever advertising lives these days? Yeah, is, <laughs> is it possible to actually learn the lessons? Because, you know, we do live in a content-rich world. You know, mm. we've just seen uh, Disney uh, Disney Plus. It's another $10 a month out of my pocket, yeah. isn't it? But, yeah, and then you've got, you know, all the other streaming services. We've got so many channels that people can just mm. view content that are all competing with each other. But they're also going to be hungry for content. You know, oh, they Lord, actually yeah. live and breathe on having something new to, to uh, quench our in, insatiable thirst for great storytelling. And those ideas can potentially come from anywhere. Um, I mean, I've, I, I used to work in a, in a very large production company and you know, a lot of what they did were branded series that, that went on television. You know, the television channels are hungry, their audiences are hungry, and there are really interesting partnerships to be, to be done to get you know, unusual stories out there in, in interesting and new ways. So, like, uh, this was a continuation of the soap opera because the yeah. soap opera was the radio play that was sponsored by soap companies. Exactly right. So one of my favorite new entrants into the, this whole sort of storytelling content marketing thing is MailChimp. Um, who've identified um, this, uh, their target market are not the large enterprises, they use Oracle or whatever. They're targeting um, SMEs and startups and entrepreneurs. And for every SME and startup and entrepreneur, there's a story of the point where they turned their back on the corporate world and they went out and did it alone. They're mavericks, right? Mm -hmm. So they've identified this as, a, as, as the seed of, of a million stories. Yep. And so they've started these seven new series and one is about um, second lives, people in their 50s who after 30 years in the corporate world are going to go it alone and start their own business. Um, as a way to sort of inspire that segment. And they've done a, a wonderful series with Shirley Manson of Garbage, who I adore, um, interviewing musicians about the song that changed their life and made them give everything up and become a musician. Everything's built around this idea of the leap you have to take. They're making this content to appeal to entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs and, and, and business owners. Um, 
to, to, to motivate them, inspire them. And the content's fantastic. It's world class and it's compelling. And of course, when you, you know, you're looking for your new suite of marketing tools to launch your business, MailChimp wants to be top of mind. Yeah. And, and, I, and I listen be, to that stuff. Because it's going to inspire you by telling the stories of the other people that have done it. I think so. It's very effective. And I listen to the Shirley Manson podcast. I mean, that's part of my weekly rotational listening now. Mm. And it's brought to me by MailChimp. Who knew? So you think there's an opportunity, but uh, for brands to actually start producing real, you know, valuable content that people want to watch and listen to and engage with. They are, but I do think um, when you said, "How do we bring some of that Hollywood feel to things?" Um, I feel like it's the, the 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 biggest issue is process, the way that marketing is commissioned and produced and put out into the world is the problem. Um, and certainly, um, I think this is very pronounced in Singapore, where we have this real vendor-client, slightly combative relationship, which obviously is, you'll know way better than me, you know, how this works. But I think content and the people who create it have become very commoditized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ideas are, are allegedly sort of free. You know, I, I put out a, a barely written brief and expect your best idea back. And without any knowledge of my business or my customers or anything, if you don't immediately and implicitly understand exactly what I had in my head, then you're useless at your job, you know. I am thankfully now in, in my little one-man consultancy that I that I now run, I'm working with a very different customer from the MNCs I used to work with. Mm-hmm. I'm working with founders and business owners of very large businesses, but they're still founder-led. And the relationship with the client is much less vendor-client and much more consultant partner come sit with me tell me about this talk me through the process how should what's the best way to do this and i'm having conversations that are less about sort of how much and how quick and much more about who and what idea and and how should we approach it Mm. and i think that's wonderful and we you know we want to see more of that yeah it's interesting though that uh, when you're telling the stories about hollywood's approach Mm. you know one of the reasons that they have the Johnny Depps and the Tom Cruises and the you know the the famous directors like uh, you know Michael Bay and that type of thing mm-hmm. is that the investors and because of their reputations yeah. the investors are going to be less likely to stand there and tell them how to do their job mm. right and yet in advertising it's almost like we have gone the other way you know we don't have the big names in the industry, we may have them within the industry, like we have creative awards like Khan that people win, but it only really gets celebrated by the agencies themselves. The people that win at Khan don't become big names in business. They no, become I mean, not big like they names used to, but we're, we're in danger of moving into nostalgic territory and talking no, about people, you know, who, who made up the initials of all our favorite famous agencies. But you're, you're right in the, you know, does the client wield too much power? I think the way Hollywood looks at it is we invest in that talent to produce something special. I think... Um, Clients don't think of it as an investment in talent. They think of it as I'm purchasing a commodity. You know, they want to buy content off the shelf as though it's a it's a product that's sort of... The, no, they think of... I, I don't think they're buying it off the shelf. I think they think, I, this is what I need. I need my CEO to tell the story of mm. the cables at mm. uh, Fukushima because that's what I need. But well, he hasn't even got to the point of thinking of 
how could we do it better? All right, They've almost enough. done start, middle, and end. So now I've just got to find someone that can do it. Yeah, so ne- so and his therefore, I'll get at the lowest possible cost. So his question to me then becomes, you know, someone who is, you know, got a background of sort of writing and journalism and filmmaking, very interesting things like this. His question to me then becomes, how much is a camera? And yeah. I'm just like, well, I wouldn't know because I can't shoot. He's like, what? Do you, I thought you were video. I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a writer and producer and <laughs> director. Yeah, yeah. And what's that? I just need a camera, you know. So I, you you are right. I've jumped the gun there. Um, he he'd, he'd taken something that could have been great and reduced it down to how quickly and how cheaply can you get a camera in the room? But what was his motivation? Possibly his motivation was, I need to do this to get FaceTime with my CEO. It had nothing to do with the audience or the impact that story could have in a more broader way. I mean, I don't, I don't know that, but you've no, got me thinking but, about it. But, uh, you know, because it was a few years ago, I had this conversation with a recruiter and I said, why do you recruit talent in advertising to fill spots? What happened if we turned it on its head? What if we turned it into that the agencies didn't become factories that produced advertising and therefore had to hire talent into them? What if we actually went to the Hollywood market where advertising agencies became like talent agencies, where they actually represented the best talent in the world at creating storytelling for advertising and for marketing? Right? I'm 100% with you. I, as much as possible, when, when my clients ask me, all right, Neil, what story should we tell and, and who should be telling them? My, what I do now is I don't, I don't, I don't talk about, um, you know, well, we need a video, we need a, you know, I, we need a blog, we need a whatever. I talk about, you know what, we need to talk to my buddy Tim, who's one of the best business journalists in the region. We need to get him in because that guy's going to write the shit out of this. Or we need to talk to my buddy Leo or my buddy um, Fraser because those guys with, a, with you know, they know how to, you know, tell a beautiful natural history story or a beautiful, let's get those guys around a table. Let's get them fired up. They're going to be so excited about your brief. And I talk about people now. I don't talk about media. Yeah. So, so I actually think it's interesting in that context that media and what was creative or content split apart in the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting from the point of view that, to me, the distribution channels, which is what media is. Yep is become consolidated, it's big business, it's data-driven, it has strategy and and creativity at some level, but it's largely about having a massive infrastructure. On the other side, you've got content creation, which can actually fragment. It's actually more interesting having lots and lots of really talented people out there producing content because you'll get diversity and you'll get different approaches and innovation and things like that. Much like, let's go back to Hollywood. What's happened to Hollywood studios after the la- over the last 20 or 30 years? They've all consolidated. They've oh, yeah, all become, yeah. you know, what is it? Sony, TriStar, Columbia. You know, there is three studios all consolidated into one. What do they do? They largely don't produce content. No, well, no. They, they don't. actually... <laughs> Contracted, they either acquire it or they contract it from independent producers. Well, they really what they do is they they finance and market it. Yeah, that's what they do through but, the but, channels. But that the relationship they, own. they have with creators is very very interesting. So you know the the best thing that can happen to you as a filmmaker in Hollywood is that someone like Universal or Warner Brothers says 
we love you, we think your ideas are great, and we want to set you up with an office on our lot. We'll mm. pay for everything. You just come in every day and you just have as many ideas as you can and you share them with it. It's so talent-centric. It's so talent-driven. Um, can you ever imagine a, a... Well, some clients do do that. So you look at the foundry in Unilever. Yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. example of that. But for a lot of people, they keep the, the talent at arm's length. They find them messy and difficult, and they go... I, you know, just how much for a video, not come and sit with me, come sit in my organization, have a look around, see if you can spot a story, see if you can find an opportunity. But it's interesting because then you see the talent, you know, like the Spielbergs and, and the like, mm. that had been through that system and then they go out and become independent producers mm. because it gives them greater control, they can make more money, they can have their pet projects and they mm. can then pitch that back to the studio because the studio is largely the way whether it's the traditional theatrical studio or the streamers, mm -hmm. you know, the way that you commercialise your product. And the product is the creative output of storytelling. I do think to your point there that actually creators themselves can be a bit more proactive. So, for example, um, Cheryl Go from, from Grab Taxi told a story um, a couple of years ago when I saw her on stage about how a production company had just come to her with an idea and they said, look, we've got this idea. We want to make it anyway, but we think this would be great for Grab. And she she went for it. She said, you know what? I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't looking for it. But this is a really good pitch. Mm. I'm going to go for it. That's kind of how Hollywood works as well. You know, you, you go through the door with an idea you're totally passionate about and you want it. And I'd, I'd love to see brands and agencies be more open to that. What was it called? The film was Robert Altman's The Player. And everyone was pitching all the way through the film. People were pitching uh, ideas because it's all about a movie studio. If you haven't seen How it, have I not seen that? You have, the Robert Altman's the That's player. embarrassing. It also <laughs> has the longest opening tracking shot of any film ever shot. Okay, well, that's, so, that's the so, sort of geek but, pub trivia that I appreciate. <laughs> but but what I liked about it was people were pitching and they were pitch, pitching on this, this basis. It's like... Such and such meets such. Yeah, they'd pick two box office hits and just put them together. So we it's still like do this versus this. And people would get it straight the away. The legendary um, 80s producing duo of Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, um, they they came Top up gun. with the, the concept movie. And the concept movie was apparently Don Simpson would just shout at a PA and go, Tom Cruise, fighter jets. Write it. <laughs> and that was it. And then for Days of Thunder, it was Tom Cruise, racing cars. Write it. <laughs> And that's what he would do all day. But they had the golden touch for a short period there. They had the golden touch. It, it's interesting because I think content is largely misrepresented by marketing as, okay. as a concept. And what I mean by that is that when we talk to a lot of marketers about content, they think about web pages, they think about mm. uh, videos about how we make our product and mm. things like <laughs> that. They actually have a very factory out view of what content actually means. And yet yeah. almost everything we've been talking about here is actually consumer in. Yeah, and they, they have a very, to your point earlier, a very media-centric view. they they commissioned by Medium. And I was talking to um, uh, Andy Greenaway recently, you know, fairly, we're talking about well-known creative directors. He's a fairly well-known and respected um, creative director in our region. And he was talking about, you know, the, the big idea, the concept of the big idea. Now, I know it's a slightly romanticized notion within our industry, but this idea of have, have the idea first, then work out the medium. Don't go around just commissioning videos or blogs or like before you've got the idea. Let's think of something that we want to say. Let's think of a story and then work out what is the best way to express it. That's mm. what Visa used to do with Click to View. Sorry, you've given me a headache because the number of clients that have said to me, 
yes, I want the agency to do the big idea, but then I want to see it as a TV ad. <laughs> they couldn't actually see the idea unless it was expressed as advertising. So, so one of the best clients that we ever got to work with at Click to View was um, was Visa, and and the reason was is that they they committed to doing sort of storytelling with their merchants and their customers and, and whatnot, um, and they had this sort of budget uh, ring fenced, and what they said is they they found a story, and then they would sit down with us, me and Simon and the Click to View team. And they would say, so how's, how do we tell, what's the best way to tell this story? And there was no, you know, you have to produce X many videos, X many blogs, X many photo stories and infographics. It was, what's the best way to tell this story? And we'd work it out and go, you know what, this, this one's a video. This one's an infographic, mm. this one. And we would do it that way. And consequently, even if you didn't have the best story, because you were telling it in the best possible way for that story, it all came out pretty good. Neil, I've just noticed the time. Sorry, I yap on I really, <laughs> really, really appreciate sitting down and having this conversation because it's a subject that, you know, I'm really passionate about. Well, I you're think. you're a very good content creator and you're a very frequent content creator. And, and I like, you know, I, I for those that don't know, I use your marketing minute as an example in my, my workshops and sessions about how you should do B2B content. So Well, thank up. you for that. But uh, just to finish up, I want to ask you, in the story of your life, yes. who would star as Neil Moore? Thank you.